Hey everybody, Adam from the future here. We had some recording issues with uh, the way Zoom processed our audio for this episode. First time that's ever happened. And so all I have is the audio where we're both talking at the same time. And I usually like cut out when we interrupt each other and, and all that to make the conversation flow. And I'm not gonna be able to do that this time. So here it is, season five, episode one. You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus, who also happen to love Hogwarts, hobbits, and walking around on those, what do you call them? Oh, feet. This is season five, episode one. <laughs> I want songs. I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Adam. Welcome to season five of the podcast. Woo! Did you ever think we'd make it this far? I don't know. I, I, I we started this almost three years ago. It's been oh my two and a half years, I think, from the recording of this from our first episode, and really like right at three years from from the germ of the idea of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Between now and the last time we recorded, what's been what four months? Uh, mm-hmm. Any anything new you want to share with our listener? The movie Encanto came out. Indeed, and we're going to talk about that. <laughs> and I season. want this. This whole season just to be let's analyze Encanto. Um, yeah, we we tried new- really uh, we tried really hard not to fill out the whole season yeah. with just Encanto. I wouldn't say that Mirabelle has replaced Moana for my favorite Disney heroine or mm-hmm. heroine in general or fictional character, but they're coming pretty close. It's been on repeat. I've yeah. only preached on it once, but I haven't had as robust of a preaching schedule than uh-huh. I did when I had seen Moana. What about you? What have yeah. you been up to? Well, let's see. Uh, I had surgery on my jaw, mm. uh, so hopefully I'll be able to talk with less pain. Um, so that's that's been that's been good. Still, it's still healing. It's almost there. I've also been writing a new book, um, and I'm really excited about it. I, I'm sure I'll talk about it at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't take place in Sulerol in my D and D world. It's a brand new. IP, as they say, uh, intellectual property. A new world to explore. Indeed. Uh, speaking of exploring new worlds, uh, we'll get to that nerd quote in a second, but our scripture <laughs> quotation today, oh. it comes from the Book of Common Prayer, uh, excuse me, not from scripture, but from the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, it is one of the prayers that takes place after the prayers of the people, and it goes like this, Heavenly Father, you have promised to hear what we ask in the name of your Son. Accept and fulfill our petitions, we pray, not as we ask in our ignorance, nor as we deserve in our sinfulness but as you know and love us in your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And our quotation from Nerd Canon is from the song Bell Reprise from Beauty and the Beast. And it goes, I will not sing it, although I'd like to. (laughs) I want adventure in the great wide somewhere. I want it more than I can tell. And for once, it might be grand to have someone understand. I want so much more than they've got planned. I want songs. All right. So this this phrase actually entered my lexicon, I think, a couple of years ago when I was listening to an interview with Lynn Manuel Miranda about Hamilton mm. and him mm-hmm. and him talking about writing uh, my shot and having that kind oh, of unlock yeah. the entire show for him. That that the I want song in Hamilton is my shot. I want songs tend to be the second song in a musical. The first one being kind of the big number that sets mm-hmm. up the world or sets up mm-hmm. the characters and so forth. So in in Canto, that is the family Madrigal, and then the second song is the I want song, uh, waiting on a miracle. In yep. Beauty and the Beast, it's Bell is the the big opening number, and then the reprise of Bell is the uh, I want song, and so forth. So yeah, I want song is always the second song, almost always the second song, and is the one that. Uh, tells us what the character wants in mm-hmm. in this story that we're about to be be a part of. And it, the fact that they come second means that you've gotten you've gotten a wide lens view of the world. They've introduced some of the themes and the characters, and then it often kind of peels off almost in a quiet moment in some ways. Like Belle is off on her own in the hills. We are focusing on Disney Renaissance and beyond. We're not there are I want songs and ballads in earlier Disney films, but. We looked at them and they're not very interesting. 
Yeah. Someday my prince will come. I mean, it's a lot of that Disney formula of Prince Charming and not right. to say that yeah. romance is useless, but they're not, they don't, they kind of all start to sound alike. Whereas in looking at Disney Renaissance and beyond, we notice a trajectory in how the songs um, move and what the kind of, what, what the characters want. And in picking this quotation from our Christian tradition, from the book of common prayer, noticing that we, as prayers, fervent prayers, praying big prayers, um, have this belief that our, we ask God for what we want. We put out a plea into, to our creator and that hopefully we hope that we met with what we actually need, maybe not what we actually want. And so part of the trajectory of the, I want song is in the second, second song in a film, the character saying what they want. And by the end, you see how that wish that prayer is fulfilled in the the structure of a story oftentimes the tension happens as the character uh, moves from getting what they want to getting what they need by the end of the the story as you said uh and the i want songs that we're going to talk about today we might not mention every single one of them so we're talking here about the songs uh, starting with part of your world from the little mermaid uh, Bell's reprise from Beauty and the Beast. Aladdin doesn't have an I want song, really. Uh, I just can't wait to be king from the Lion King. Just around the river bend from Pocahontas. Go the distance from Hercules. Reflection from Mulan. Uh, I'm almost there from Princess and the Frog. When will my life begin from Tangled? Do you want to build a snowman from Frozen? How far I'll go from Moana? And Waiting on a Miracle from Encanto. And if we have time, we'll chat about Frozen 2, which is a sequel. So the I want songs in that are a little different. Oh, that's a lot of songs. So we probably won't get to talk about every one of them, but they all follow the pattern that Carrie was mentioning earlier, uh, where the character presents their desire their or petition. If you want to use the, uh, Mm -hmm. the prayer word that we, that we mentioned earlier. Um, and then over the course of the story, we can see how that desire transforms towards the end of the story. Some of them fall on the same themes. And a lot of that has to do with, I think, the age and stage and the story of the characters, Disney folks being generally in their late mid to late teens, maybe early twenties. It's hard to tell. Like me. Well, you're not a Disney character yet. Oh, Disney character. I thought you meant Disney. Yeah. Disney characters, but (laughs) maybe resonating with people of all ages who remember that yearning to belong yearning to to fit into the world. There's a little bit of teenage rebellion in these I want songs. And there's also a desire to have one's vocation be realized, particularly in the later Disney songs. And so it's interesting to see that develop over time, going from the very simple one day my prince will come all the way up to a song like Waiting for a Miracle from Encanto. And the one day my prince will come is a very passive song. It's about waiting for something mm. to happen. Whereas though I want songs are more about yearning, yes, for something to happen, but also for the agency to to make something happen. That's um, a really good point. So much, these are such active. I mean, I think we. Sh- I'm definitely going to make a playlist let's, let's and drop it on in. Twitter yeah. because Done. they are they are active. They are energizing. Think about you know my shot from Hamilton. Great mm-hmm. song to run to oh, if yeah. you are a person who needs music to exercise. Um, yeah. They are very energizing songs because these characters are going to go and seek what they are feeling and desiring. They're young, scrappy, and hungry, right? Exactly. <laughs> so it's interesting. Some of them actually have the phrase, I want in them. Not every one of them says, I want, but some of them actually just say it. Uh, you know, Ariel says, I want more. I want more. I want to be where the people are. I want to see them dancing. You know, I. this is what I want. She, she puts it out into the world. We could say mm-hmm. that this is her prayer in a way. Uh, that that's that's the petition that she has. Well, and and for Belle and Beauty and the Beast, she says, you know, I want much more than this provincial life. I want adventure. And then the kind of half wistful ending remark of it might be grand to have someone understand. So there's a desire for being somewhere else besides this poor provincial town, which I think is kind of classist, but whatever. Um, (laughs) And then really it comes down to she wants to be seen and understood. I just can't wait to do be king doesn't really have the phrase I want in it, but he does talk about, yeah, free to run around all day, free to do it all in my way. Oh, it, it does. I just want to, I, I just can't wait to be king is what he says. So it's yeah. close. It's like, I want to be king, but it doesn't actually say well, I and want. He takes it as a given. I'm going to mm. be a mighty king. He's yeah. like, he, and there's a little bit of um, 
with Ariel when she says part of her non-spoken wish is that, you know, I bet on shore the fathers don't reprimand, reprimand their, their daughters. daughters. <laughs> yeah. There's a little bit of like somewhere else besides here, I will have power and my life will be better. You mm-hmm. know, whereas Simba is being nipped and poked around and at the mercy of that bird. Don't diss Zazu. That's those are my I boys, dis- Rowan Atkinson and John Oliver. Depending I on which version you <laughs> Continuing on, let's just, let's just keep keep surveying where we find the I wants in these songs. So uh, next one is Go the Distance from Hercules, uh, which is definitely one of my like belted out songs. Oh, uh, yeah. You know? um, and this one is, is very wistful. It, it also doesn't say mm-hmm. I want, but you can definitely feel it in in the words. He wants to know where he belongs. He, mm-hmm. he feels out of place because he's half human. He's half God. He, he just doesn't know where he fits. And the same thing could be said about Mulan, right? Yeah. Well, and Mulan starting to hint at the wider interest that Disney develops in like family structures. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Mulan is kind of being like a proto Moana and mm-hmm. Mirabelle in some ways because she wants to be herself. She wants to see the reflection in the mirror, reflect back who she is. But she says, now I see that if I were truly to be myself, I would break my family's heart. So in a society that, that, values family and honor that's another one of the wonderful songs from moana from mulan is you know bringing honor to your family by bearing sons is how they say it in mulan and a man by bearing arms she wants to bring honor to her family but not through an arranged marriage that's not her and she has the choice to play the perfect daughter or to be herself so she feels a call to something different but she still wants to be loved and honored by her family versus someone like Ariel, who's kind of like, eh. Yeah, my, I can, I can, I can leave this whole. I can get, yeah, I'll leave them I, all I behind. Even, yeah. And for Mulan, the want is the want is actually the tension in the in the story. It's the dual desire to please family and also be able to chart her own course. And to serve in a way that makes that that isn't expected, but that is really the only she feels is the only right choice. She cannot send her father back to war. He is, you know, injured and old, and he's he's served before. And since they don't have a son, she's the only one who can go. She thinks so. It is, you know, finding a path that is not expected by those around her. What about Princess and the Frog? I'm I'm not as familiar with this movie uh, as you are. So this um, this is a you know a tale of a, a woman who has a dream. She wants to open up her own restaurant in New Orleans, and she believes very deeply in hard work will get you there. And so you see her; she's actually been gift a lot of um, <laughs> like coming home at the end of her long day and like falling on her bed exhausted. If you yeah. ever are gifting people, I guess. Um, so she <laughs> she wants to you know save up her pennies and open this restaurant. And in the song, I'm almost there. She doesn't exactly say what she wants. She doesn't say, I want, you know, this I want precise a thing she's, <laughs> yeah, I want a restaurant. Um, but she does say, you know, people will come there from everywhere. And she, she names the work ethic that her daddy gave to her. Fairy tales can come true, but you got to make them happen. It all depends on you. And so this song is about plotting her course, walking towards it faithfully, slowly, but surely. I know exactly where I'm going. I'm getting closer and closer every day. And then, of course, Prince Prince Naveen shows up and messes it all up. And you know, she will get her happy ending and and her dream, but it will look different than she imagined. So, moving from there, speaking of making things look different, uh, we move from the hand drawn animation to the computer animation. Uh, speak, starting with Tangled, and when will my life begin? Mandy Moore starts singing about all the chores that she does, everything that she does to keep uh, occupied, sitting in her tower all day, every day. And and she seems pretty happy throughout that song to be doing whatever she mm-hmm. does. But then at the end of the song, we see that she has this mural that she's painted of the lights. And she looks out the window and she says, tomorrow night, the lights will appear just like they do on my birthday each year. What is it like out there where they glow? Now that I'm older, mother might just let me go. Mother might let me go is I want is the I want mm-hmm. in this song. That And again, it's I want more than this provincial life. And she has a specific want, which is to go see the lights. But really it's how do I, you know, how do I break free of this, this uh, cycle that I've been in? She'll paint the walls. I'm sure there's room somewhere. Like she's running out of space. Mm -hmm. She's running out of things to occupy her time. 
Um, and she's stuck in that tower, repainting the walls, rereading the books. Yep. Uh, the stuck a very is the word. Accomplished young woman. Yes. Yeah, stuck is the word there. You know, mm, that's the word mm-hmm. that propels her into the wondering, when will my life begin? And then I love that Frozen's I Want song is actually a Do You Want song. Frozen oh. is so amazing in so many ways, but the I Want song in Frozen is is hidden. And I think it's Mm. hidden because the first time you watch Frozen, you think that the movie is about something else. Mm -hmm. You think it's about Anna falling in love and and having to get through her sister in order to fall in love. And so the I want really feels like maybe it's first the first time in forever is the I want song. Yeah, but it's not. Yes, it's not. (laughs) Yeah. And the first song in the show in the movie is actually um, Frozen Heart. Uh huh. Uh, So even though it's a prologue, is it is it the first song? So do you want to build a snowman? Could be the first oh, song or not. Man. So first time it carries it, mind is, is is exploding right now. Literally. Um, but then when you go back hurts. and you watch, you go back and you watch the movie <laughs> okay. a second time and you know that it's about the sister's relationship and that Hans is the bad guy, then you realize that do you want to build a snowman is the I want song in this in this movie because it's about Anna's desire to be in a relationship with her sister. Mm-hmm. I want you to want to build a snowman with me. Right. And and you do see that some ways kind of like, um, gosh, what is her? Oh, Rapunzel. That's her name. <laughs> you see that kind of like Rapunzel. Anna is filling up her time. She's riding, riding her, her bike around the halls. She's bouncing on the going cushions. through the, yeah. Bouncing on the cushions and go, you know, watching the hours tick by. She says, I think some company is overdue. And then at the end with the song turning wistful and grief stricken after their parents' mm-hmm. death, she's, She's outside her sister's door saying, you know, they say have courage and I'm trying to, I'm right out here for you. Just let me in. That's, you know, again, and I want, I want you to let me in because we are the only ones left and we have to be together in order to survive this awful thing that has happened to us when we've become orphans. As has been discussed before, Moana's vocation as the chosen one by the sea is to leave Motunui, restore the heart of Tefiti, with or without Maui's help, she discovers. Um, and this is, again, she feels a call to something else. She's not disdainful of her home the way that Belle is about the poor provincial town. She mm-hmm. loves her home and her people, as we'll sing about later in Moana. Um, but she still feels this call of the sea and knows that it doesn't fit in with her current, the rules she has by, from her father and the current structure that her society has. So kind of like Mulan, she wants to honor her family and her people serve them well, but she knows she can't do it in the way that has been set for her. She'll even lug that rock up to the top of Montanui to put it there and build up their Island taller, but she just can't do it. And then we get the kind of breakdown of, of all the facades and she's just alone on the shore singing about how far she'll go. And there's even a, a, one of the verses in How Far I'll Go has her backtrack a little bit. You know, I, I, maybe I can roll with my my role mm-hmm. here on the island. Um, but then she says, but the voice inside sings a different song. What is wrong with me? It goes back to the Mulan. I'll break my family's heart if I, mm-hmm. if I stay true to myself. And then she even has the word calling in here. It seems like it's conch out to me. So come find me, which is why the conch shell is such an important symbol in the movie. And then uh, our our last one of the traditional I Want songs, talk to me about waiting on a miracle. In Encanto, everyone's got magical gifts except for Mirabelle. And she's puts up with it. She's cheerful. She's helpful. And then in this moment where she is forgotten, the family all takes a photo and they show off their gifts and she is left not in the photo. It, you know, the, the scene kind of pauses and she wanders off feeling left out. And she says, you know, I don't have these gifts my family has. I can't move mountains. I can't make the flowers bloom. I'm longing to be seen. I'm longing to shine like all of you shine. And then what I love about this song is it shifts. She says, you know, earlier, I can't move the mountains, but I would move them. I would make something new grow. I would heal what's broken. And as we'll see throughout the course of the film, she does end up doing all of those things. Her wants, her desires of her heart are fulfilled in a less literal way. And she wants to be seen by her family to serve and to be loved and to be honored and to be known. And that all happens, although she does not get a magic gift. She doesn't need one. 
Mm. And and she says, it, kind of going all the way back to my, one day my prince will come. The song, she starts by waiting on the miracle. And the last verse, mm. she says, I'm sick of waiting on the miracle. So here I go. I'm ready. Come on. I'm ready. I've been patient and steadfast and steady. Bless me now as you've blessed us all those years ago when you gave us a miracle. Am I too late for that? Am I too late for the miracle? She's basically saying, okay, I'm going to make my own miracle now. All of these songs, these I want songs, tell uh, the characters are telling themselves and telling the audience uh, what their story, what they think their story is about Mm. uh, and what they want their story to be about. And then the question is, what does their story actually end up being about? And then how does their I want song get recontextualized by the journey that they go on? And I think that's a really uh, interesting way to think about petitionary prayer, um, which is praying for what you want, as opposed to intercessory prayer, which is praying for what somebody else might want or need. Mm -hmm. Um, Petitions are for yourself. Um, And when uh, there's a a line from a famous American preacher from the late 1900s named Phillips Brooks, he he says this, pray the largest prayers. You cannot think a prayer so large that God, in answering it, will not wish you had made it larger. Pray not for crutches, but for wings. Mm. And I've always loved that idea that God, when we're stumbling and staggering along, God doesn't want us to pray for crutches. God wants us to pray to be able to fly. So when I think about this quotation, I remind myself that I don't need to demure when I'm praying because that's just a performance that when, when I, when my praying for what I want doesn't mean I'm going to then get what I want. It helps, but it helps me to clarify what I think (laughs) might be good for me. And then as I then move about my days, maybe something else happens. And I realized that what I was really praying for wasn't what I want wasn't what I wanted, but was what I might've needed. And I, maybe I'm getting that in a way that was completely different from what I was expecting. Well, and and that's what these, these songs, these, I want songs are the largest prayers. They are dramatic. And the, the way they're animated are huge, beautiful vistas and they're climbing mountains and they're looking out into the sea and to the horizon. There are praying for their wings. Um, Some of them can't articulate exactly what, and that's where if they were Episcopalians, they might say, accept and fulfill my petition as you know, and love me, you know, give me what, I don't know what I need, but I know I I need something. I want something different than what is happening right now. Help me find that way. And then give me the tools to get there. Um, Not to, not to keep limping along, but to give me wings to really fly to what I am meant to be and to be doing. What you're what you're saying reminds me of what Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, and and mm. we're recording this the week before uh, Easter, uh, so we're coming up on Good Friday here. Um, as you listen, it'll probably be right after Easter if you listen um, right after we release it. Uh, and Jesus prays in that Garden, um, "Take this cup from me, and yet not what I want, but what you want, God." So Jesus's I want there begins with that, that idea of taking this cup for me. In other words, I, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can stay on this path. That's going to lead me to a, a horrendous, incredibly painful death. And the moment, the next moment he says, but not what I want. It's not what I want. It's what you want. Uh, in other words, help me to stay on this path. Uh, I cannot abandon the people that you have given me right now. Uh, that this is uh that the mission that I've, that you have set me on God, this mission of reconciliation and, and love and healing cannot, I I cannot abandon that mission. So I'm going to continue on this path. And unfortunately, because of the brokenness of the world, that path is going to lead to death Mm -hmm. uh, or at least through death. And that's the power of the resurrection. Uh, So Jesus has an, I want (laughs) in that moment uh, and recognizes that the want and the need are a little bit different. And he moves into the need. The need isn't necessarily his own need. It's the world's need. And it doesn't take him, it doesn't take him all movie to get from the I want to the I need. He's able to do it in a sentence. So how do how do the how do these characters that we're talking about move over the course of their of their films from the want to the need? Or how do they mm. get fulfilled in ways that might be different from what they were expecting? 
It's a great question. And as someone who is not as familiar with early Disney, because I do not have children under the age of 10, why don't you share? I forget how, you know, everyone ends up happy. That's what I remember about Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid and Lion King. But what happens? What are their needs in the end? I think that Ariel recognizes that there was a selfishness in her in her desires from part of your world. And um, even though she wants to be, you know, where the people are, I, you know, I want to be where the people are. Uh, she recognizes that she still has a relationship with her family mm. and she can have both, uh, both of those things that she doesn't need to abandon her family of origin in order to have a relationship with the humans. I know how beauty and the beast ends. Go for it which is that she joins the French aristocracy right before the revolution and probably ends up with her head on a pike. But in the meantime, she has a beautiful husband and a wonderful library. So she is able to experience kind of a cosmopolitan more than this provincial life. She's able to probably have a great lab for her dad to work in. Oh my goodness. Um, Okay. Maybe we should just skip beauty of the beast because I've, I've sensing some, uh, some hostility here to the story. I think she's very dismissive in the opening scene and it bothers me. Sorry. My I, phone I don't disagree. I also think the townspeople are kind of horrible to her. Oh, they are. Yes, that's true. But like there goes the baker with his bread, like always yep. the same old role. Like, yeah, you have to eat bread every day, especially <laughs> you if make you can't every afford day. <laughs> better food. Like, what so, are you expecting? Uh, look at her. Look at her. Uh, I want song. I want much more than this provincial life. I want adventure in the great wide somewhere. So the first one is her. Oh, this town is so boring. Mm-hmm. The second one is I've read all these great adventure stories and I wish I were part of one of them. Those are those are the uh, superficial I wants. The third one is the, actually is the need to have some. Sorry, it's not the I want. It's um, the next line. I want so much more than they've got planned. Um, no, it's the line before it. I'm sorry. I completely oh, for once it up. might be grand. To have someone understand, to have someone understand is, ends up being what her need is her need. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole movie is about she and the beast coming to understand one another. And by the end of this, the movie, they do, even before he becomes a human again. Some of these do state the real desire when they get kind of wistful at the end. (laughs) Yeah. right. Um, So we'll, we'll see that in. Hercules. Hercules, Um, Yeah. I just can't wait to be king. Simba becomes a king in the end, but not in the way of like, I'm going to push everyone else around. Like I've been pushed around as a kid. He becomes king for a noble and honorable reason. The line's free to run around all day, free to do it all all my way. He gets, he does get that, but not when he's Mm -hmm. king. He gets it with Timon and Pumbaa, but he learns the responsibility of being king. When in the song, I just can't wait to be king. It's all self-serving. It's very much about him and what he gets out of being king. And by the end mm-hmm. of the story, he's taken on the responsibility and the mantle of being the king. Not to be served, but to serve. Uh, Hercules. Again, I haven't seen this movie in a long time. I just like the music I a lot. frequently watch Hercules oh, for some reason uh, with my friend Kara, because we're weird. This song, there is a reprise and it's not as wistful. It is not a ballad. It's more of like the driving beat that we mm-hmm. expect after he reconnects with his father. So he does, he proves himself worthy as a hero. Um, he finds a place where he can belong. And yet that's not being a God. He ends up turning down Godhood to remain with Megara, his wife. Uh, sorry, soon to be wife. Don't think about the actual mytholo- mythology of it because it doesn't end well for her in the mythology. Well, let's but just in the stop, where the, movie, we'll stop where the Disney movie ends. <laughs> in the Disney movie, they end up happily ever after. And he ends up, you know, he's he's seen and honored and loved by her um, and by the gods, but it's not a godly heritage he's looking for. He's He belongs with her. His, the reason he is, achieves godhood is not the adoring crowds and the heroic feats. It's that he's willing to sacrifice himself for Meg by swimming into the underworld to retrieve her soul. With Mulan, there's the imagery here is about a mirror, the reflection in the mirror. And then most of the movie, she doesn't look like herself. Mm-hmm. Right. She's dressing up as somebody else in order to uh, to take her father's place in the army and so on and so forth. It's not to the very end of the movie where she is able to be heroic looking like Mulan. Yeah. Which is not covered in the painted face of the bride, you know, nor, nor dressed she up wipes as the, off. Yeah. As oh, paint. Yeah. She's she finds a way forward as herself, as as a woman, but also as a warrior. 
Princess and the Frog is, is someone, you know, she knows exactly what she wants in the beginning and it becomes complicated by the addition of love. You know, the beginning of, of Princess of the Song is, you know, I don't have time for dancing. It's just got to wait. And in the end, she realizes she can get what she wants, run her restaurant and still have this man that she loves for some reason. I forget why. Um, <laughs> alongside her. He's supportive of her as well. He is. Which yeah. is nice because she's the one who gets to have her dream as opposed to getting it subsumed into, you know, the her relationship. The uh, Tangled, I feel like maybe we can jump over Tangled. We already did Frozen. We can touch on Mulan here. No, my goodness. We can touch on Moana here. Why are there two <laughs> Disney movies that both start with M and have five letter names? I don't know. And then there's Mirabelle now. <laughs> uh, uh, none of them are called Natasha, at least. Um, or Natalie. Uh, that's for you season two listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Deep cut podcast for um, Christians. Yeah. So <laughs> Moana's is very similar to Mulan's in a way. I want both things. I want to be able to honor my family and mm-hmm. become self self-actualized and do the thing that I feel like the universe is calling me to do. But what she ends up doing is different than her originally stated purpose. Um, so it's not in the song that she wants to take Maui and restore the heart of Tafiti, but she ends up restoring the heart in a very different way. And then finally, waiting on a miracle, as as we said earlier, there, you know, she she's seeing all these magic gifts that she does not have. She's not able to move mountains, make flowers bloom, heal what's broken, or control the weather. And yet we'll see in the end of the film the love and the action that she has in the film splits a mountain. Mm, yep. She makes new things bloom through her sister Isabella, and she heals what's broken in the family. And she is, you know, she can't, she doesn't stay on the side anymore. Her mother, uh, sorry, her grandmother opens her eyes and sees her for who she is, that she would do all these things. She has been patient and steadfast and steady. And she is blessed. She already has a miracle, which is her courage and her strength and her love for her family and indeed the whole family. And they'll all see that by the end. As we finish up this discussion, I'm just curious about, in, you know, in your own life, is there an example of kind of an, a, a want and a need and how it played out that you can think of? Maybe mine is is almost the opposite of the early tales of Disney in that I went I went to seminary kind of accidentally. Um, I wanted to it was a free master's degree. So I went to Swanee um, and switched into an MDiv while I was there. Um, and I had given up what was a life that was fairly exciting and and relational in New Haven, um, living with my housemates at the Episcopal Service Corps and leaving them behind was heart-wrenching. And yet my third day in Swanee, I met my now husband, Nick, and and discovered love and healthy relationship. And so I think when I went down to Tennessee, I knew I wanted um, a new adventure. I wanted to be educated. I wanted to further my further my career and my, uh, the call I felt that God was giving me at the time. And it ended up being added to, um, I didn't sacrifice those friends for meeting the person I would marry, but I did shift in a lot of ways. I think, um, I don't know. It's, it's hard to really summarize. I don't break burst out into song, um, my own songs and I'd burst out into <laughs> Disney songs. So it's hard. I've never sung an I want song or really sung an I want prayer. And maybe I should. What about you, Adam? Right after getting ordained to be a priest, I lived in West Virginia for about 18 months. And I lived in a in a town that had a fairly elderly population. Uh, I was at a church, a lovely church with absolutely wonderful people. So I'm not saying that that there wasn't there wasn't good experiences here at all, but I was pretty lonely. Uh, there weren't a lot of people my age. I, I didn't have anybody to hang out with. Uh, you know, I, I went to the gym a lot and I played a lot of video games. Um, but that's about it. Uh, when I wasn't at work and I remember, having, I remember having a conversation with my sister, um, and breaking down into tears, uh, and saying, I, I'm so lonely. I, I just want, you know, a companion. I just want to be with somebody. I, and at that point I was like, I don't really care who I just, I just need something. You know, I, I, I want somebody to be with. And, and she said, I remember her, my sister saying very specifically, she said, she's out there, you know, you're, you're not in the right space right now, but she, she's out there. 
a couple of months later, I moved to Massachusetts, which is a much uh, near Boston, which is a much younger population, of course. Mm-hmm. And I met my wife, Leah, a month after I moved there. Wow. And so, but there's that want and the, and the need, you know, mm-hmm. the, the desire was just for anything, any companionship whatsoever. It, <laughs> and to, and to then very quickly meet my life partner was more than I could ask or imagine. That was my wings. You know, I was praying mm. for the crutch, but then God gave me the wings. This season on the podcast, we're going to be reading Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Just kidding. We're done with (laughs) Harry Potter. We're moving on to our one of our recent favorite authors, Becky Chambers. We're reading The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. And the first chunk of the book is what we're reading today, pages one through 54. Here's a quick recap. Ashby Santoso captains the tunneling ship, the Wayfarer, the dangerous job of which is to punch brand new holes, literal holes into space in order to make new wormholes. But as captain, Ashby's real job is managing the relations of a multi-species crew under his command, a job that takes poise and sensitivity. Rosemary, the newest member of Ashby's crew, arrives via a cramped D-pod, having fled both mysterious trouble and a privileged upbringing back on Mars. Rosemary meets most of the crew, beginning with the sentient AI Lovelace and the unlikable algiest Corbin. Next, she meets the techs Kizzy and Jenks, who are a colorful pair, to be sure. These first three crew members Rosemary meets are all human, but then she meets the pilot Sissix, the only reptilian Andrisk she has ever met in person. Sissix brings Rosemary to her room. It's the smallest room Rosemary has ever had, but it's the perfect place to start over. Sissix next brings Rosemary to the fishbowl, a beautiful hydroponic garden that helps scrub the ship's atmosphere, provides some food, and keeps the crew from going crazy on long hauls. Rosemary next meets Dr. Chef, the insectoid creature with six legs and several sets of vocal cords. The crew sits down for dinner and Rosemary eats her first red coast bug ever. That she has never eaten one before marks her privileged upbringing, for bugs are a staple in most human communities, especially the Exodon fleet from which Ashby hails. Speaking of the captain, he wonders if he's grown too comfortable with the jobs he usually takes for the Wayfarer. Could he be doing more for his crew and his family back home? So hopefully our listeners will have a chance to... to to get this book or to, you can, you can mm-hmm. get a, an audio of it on Hoopla, which is the free app uh, that libraries, you can subscribe through, through your library. You can also get an ebook version of it uh, through your library, through Hoopla, which is an app for your phone um, or your tablet. Uh, and also you could support your local independent bookstore. If you have one of those, if you're blessed to have an independent bookstore in your community. That's where I got my copy. We, we really like Becky Chambers. Her books are very tender and gentle and mm. really exploring characters and how they interact. And we love the Wayfair series for its incredibly imaginative multi-species galaxy. So uh, where do we want to go with this first chunk of book, Carrie? I mean, there's a lot. We're getting getting introduced in these first 54 pages um, to all the different types of species of which their interactions are a key heart of both this book and the Wayfair series in general. We learn about the different sort of subgroups of humans, which as fellow humans is fascinating to me at least. And there's um, just dipping into all of the various ethical questions that comes from having multiple sapient species, some of whom have had, you know, terrible wars and bloody pasts, some of whom have subjugated other races, some of, or other sentient species, some of whom have brought important life-saving tech and rescued other sapient species. It's all coming together in this galactic commons, their answer to how do these, all these different sapient species relate to each other. Each species treats gender and sexuality and coupling and relationships differently. Each species has different expectations for hygiene and clothing and temperature of the <laughs> ship that you keep it at. It's it's fascinating. It really is like a, a multicultural crew all thrown together and trying to do a very dangerous job. So I don't know where to begin. <laughs> that's a good, that was a great that's a great summary of of kind of the world that we're talking about here, or the universe, really, the galaxy. Uh, my favorite 
element of this world building is that humans are not central to the galactic yeah. commons. They are yeah. actually seen as a, a refugee species, uh, ones that are, you know, they're just not quite as developed as the other ones in as far as technology and so forth. Uh, and so these other species that have been together for a long time in the galactic commons see the humans as almost like a pet project. Even though humans are the main crew members in this book, they are not the main species in the galaxy. They're not the, mm -hmm. they're not the heroes of the, of this galaxy. Uh, and there really aren't any. I mean, every like you said, every species has its foibles and its successes, its triumphs and its failures. Uh, yeah, but if so, we're going to have a hero, it's obviously the Andrisks, right? I don't know. I like the Aliwans. I really like the Aliwans. Although they're like the militaristic. Ugh. The Andrisks are more like the hippies, and they're like. Well, this cool. is this is how um, Rosemary summarizes it. This is on page. So we're using the original version. Yeah. Um, the, with big uh, text on it that Harper, Harper Voyage, Harper Voyager yeah. released. Uh, there's been a more recent one, but so our page numbers are are based on that um, are based on that edition, and maybe they're the same. I'm not sure. Anyway, in the chapter the tum tunnelers, Rosemary summarizes it this way. Basically, she's talking about the this Remembrance Day when the the last humans left Earth and went out into the star filled void looking for life or just to survive. And she meant, you know, this Remembrance Day festival is meant as a gesture of friendship and unity, that they could work together towards a bright, bright galactic future. But of course, you know, nothing really changes. She says the diaspora was still ineffectual in the GC parliament. Hamargians had money. Elawans had firepower. Andrisks had diplomacy. Humans had arguments. We begin the story or the book with Ashby, the captain, who's a, an Exodon human, meaning he came from the Exodus fleet or the Exodon fleet. Uh, and there's a quotation from the very first uh, page of his chapter, a complaint uh, that's, that says this. Um, These were the sounds of spacer life, an underscore of vulnerability and distance. They were reminders of what a fragile thing it was to be alive. But those sounds also meant safety. An absence of sound meant the air was no longer flowing, engines no longer running, and artigrav nets no longer holding your feet to the floor. Silence belonged to the vacuum outside. Silence was death. There were other sounds too, sounds made not by the ship itself, but by the people living in it. I really love that uh, move from the sounds of the ship mm. that's keeping them all alive. And if, it, if there were no sounds, then we're dead. Uh, and then moving to the sounds that really keep them alive, which is the relationships that the crew have with one another and, and the camaraderie that they share. Corbin, the jerk algiest who's a little speciesist and can throw around slurs when he's angry and losing his temper. They trust him to do his job of keeping the algae going and the fuel going because they need to. Um, they're all united by this dangerous mission they're on. The fact that between, between them and horrible emptiness is just some pieces of metal. And if that ship were to become breached or there was an emergency, they would they would be all as equally dead, even if they are of such different people when they're alive. So despite all these differences, they are united in the fact that they are vulnerable in this, you know, beautiful floating ship. Um, and then also that, that they all fight, they all argue, they all love and have different relationships. Um, they are still people, they're all people in the end. Yeah. And it's interesting. You, you mentioned Corbin's uh, speciest rhetoric. Uh, one of the big elements of the Becky Chambers books as we said before, is this, these various species interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a wonderful analog for how we as humans can treat one another when our cultures differ from each other, recognizing mm -hmm. that uh, one culture is not better or worse than another, but that cultural differences uh, exist and they don't signal any type of hierarchy. They just signal difference and that difference doesn't mean good or bad. It's just different. Uh, and uh, I, on page 10 of our, of our version, Ashby actually has a great example of uh, interrupting, you know, a racial oh, insult yeah. from Corbin. Corbin calls Sissix a lizard and, and uh, says, you know, it's hardly the worst racial insult, but Ashby doesn't let him off the hook. It says, 
Ashby says, I don't care how mad you get. That kind of language does not belong on my ship. Losing your temper is one thing, but you're part of a multi-species crew and you need to be mindful of that. The mindfulness of recognizing uh, how we interact with one another honors the dignity of the other. I like, I appreciate Ashby's unapologetic interruption of Corbin's rant. Um, he really is taking on his role as the captain, and I'm sure he would interrupt any other crew member if they were saying the same thing about, you know, just because Sissex is his friend doesn't mean he's especially protective of her. He would be protecting the dignity of any of his crew. And he just says, hey, you know, and interrupting that and gets Corbin's attention and, and gets him back on track. Mm-hmm. It's a good model for how all of us, you know, might be called to sometimes just say, if we are hearing someone on a tirade that is offensive and is not recognizing the full dignity or personhood of another person to say, Hey, to Mm. stop them in their tracks. In the next chapter, Rosemary has a moment where she thinks the term cold blooded Mm. for uh, sure. She, she recognizes something from her, um, again, that interspecies class that she took, recognizing some of the, the biased language that we can say unconsciously, thinking of uh, in, in, in English, the term cold-blooded is a synonym for heartless, mm-hmm. but the Andrisks are cold-blooded. So when you think about, when you say that somebody's cold-blooded, you have to think, oh, wait, no, the Andrisks aren't, you know, they're very warm people. Uh, so, and we have, speaking. metaphorically speaking, we have the same things in our own language when we have embedded racist language um, mm-hmm. that we say all the time, but we don't necessarily realize uh, where it comes from or what it could mean. The Andrisk we meet yeah. in this, Sissix, is incredibly well-versed in human customs. Mm-hmm. I love the moment when Rosemary meets her and she's immediately like, I'm going to prepare myself for some of that Andrisk cheek nuzzling I've heard so much about. And then Sissix like, gives her her hand because yeah. she's, she's more multi-species acclimated than Rosemary is. I love that the, that she had an interspecies, uh, what was it, interspecies relations professor in college. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rosemary had, uh, and but it's all book learning for her right so far. She hasn't been out mm-hmm. in the in the galaxy to actually uh, experience any of that. She's been stuck back on Mars. So let's talk about red coast bugs. Uh, have you ever eaten a bug before, Carrie? I have. Okay, you're one up on me. I don't think I've ever <laughs> willingly eaten a bug. I think I've swallowed some that have flown into my mouth. Camp Washington, uh. 1999, dare <laughs> to eat crickets. They were pretty fine. Yeah. So imagine and, yeah. giant crickets. And there are cultures in the world, the actual world, where bugs are, <laughs> you know, part <laughs> of their diet. And so we have to, and they, Becker Chambers talks about this in the book, the idea of there's a knee-jerk reaction to see somebody else's cultural difference as bad or worse than what you have simply because you are used to what you mm-hmm. do. And so it seems normative because you're used to it, but really it's just different. So, and so much of this is like those knee-jerk reactions of, you know, like, like Rosemary seeing Sissix for the first time and sort of cataloging all she knows about her species and saying promiscuous. Oh, nope, not that's a that's a stereotype based on my own human understanding and so when when the crew welcomes her with this dr chef one of the the main characters cooks up this beautiful meal to welcome her to the ship including these red what they're called red coast bugs and they're these large insects that were on an aoan world and some humans noticed them and we're like hey we can eat those you know humans are great at eating random stuff (laughs) and when Rosemary, who comes from Mars, has never eaten them before. So when when she comes to eat these red coast bugs for the first time, which are a staple in so many human communities on the Exodon fleet and in all these extrasolar colonies, she comes face to face with her privilege as someone from Mars. It says on page 41, she was a descendant of the wealthy meat eaters who had shipped livestock through space while nations starved back on Earth. Even though Exodons and Solons had long ago put away put their old grudges behind them, mostly, her privileged ancestry was something she had become ashamed of. 
It reminded her all too well of why she had left home. And we'll explore more about her specific family ancestry and her, her father's work in the future of this book. But knowing that she comes from people who were shipping luxury goods to another planet that was been terraformed while whole groups of people on earth were unable to afford even even the basic necessities of food mm-hmm. is kind of, you know, is, is a little bit reminiscent of people whose wealth was built on the slave trade, building their, their wealth and their privilege and their place in the world on the backs of other people. In this case, the Martians being this, the people that escaped, were wealthy enough to escape from earth when it became uninhabitable versus the Exodans who built their homesteader ships and set out. Mm-hmm. So those two kind of human factions um, which are sort of sort of reunited, yeah. but not quite. Did you mean to skip a line when you were reading that? No. Yeah. Did you, I? You skipped. Uh, yeah, you skipped the. She, she was a descendant of the wealthy meat eaters who had first settled Mars. The cowards who had shipped livestock oh. through space while nations starved back on Earth. Oh yeah, so, that's a big. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Rosemary sees her ancestors as these cowardly people who did not provide for the for folks back on Earth, but took their ball and went home, basically. It'll be curious to, as we go through this book, to watch Rosemary come to terms with her privilege in terms in, in how she reacts to it. I think a, one easy way that is a, a natural reaction to privilege is to immediately feel a lot of guilt and kind of wither and mm-hmm. withdraw. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't actually help heal anything. It doesn't help form relationships. And watching her in this scene, at least, you know, she she realizes she has this privilege of as a meat eater, someone who's eaten grass raised beef cattle on Mars, and she's going to take her cues from those around her in order to fit into this new multi-species crew, which doesn't have the same privilege as her. And it's and she recognizes kind of the the irony in the fact that she <laughs> watches what she considers an alien eating a red coast bug so that she can do it without being embarrassed. <laughs> Yeah. Because she doesn't know how to open a lobster, basically. And Andrus um, showing her how to eat a human staple yeah, a hu- food. A human staple food. <laughs> All right, what are we reading next time? Next time on the podcast, we'll be reading pages 55 to 104 of the book. That's the chapters, Technical Details, Blind Punch, and the Job. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Please give us a rating or review on your favorite podcast app so others can discover us too. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians and on Twitter at nerdychristians, where I occasionally tweet bad memes. You can find Adam on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on his website, adamthomas.net. Planer's Steel, sequel to last year's Vampire Mist, will be out soon, where you too can find out what happens when you have too much pillow talk with an angry evil sword. And as always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. If you want much more than this provincial life, even if you're the girl, the girl who has everything, or you just can't wait to be king, if you would go most anywhere to feel like you belong, then no, you do not have to wait for a miracle. You are a miracle. The miracle God has called into this world. Amen. Amen.